Every hour in the United States, a hundred marriages end in divorce. Every hour, day and night, 2,400 marriages every day end in divorce. Now, it's an often misstated fact that uh, half of all marriages end in divorce in the United States. It's actually not quite that bad. So I'll correct the statistics here. The divorce rate reached its peak around 1980, in which about 41% of all marriages ended in divorce. And actually, the divorce rate has been on decline ever since. But uh, before you get too, too smug in these statistics, wait until I show you the rest of them with you. It's nonetheless an abysmal statistic to think that 41% of marriages end in divorce when it was meant to last forever. Perhaps more concerning today is the number of young people in America who just never get married. In 2011, just 20% of adults ages 18 to 29 are married. Compare that to the same statistic in 1960 when 59% of adults in the same age, 18 to 29, were married. 59% down to 20%. Barely half of all U.S. adults of all ages, over 18, are married. About 51% today compared to 72% in 1960. It seems, my friends, that we live in a society where marriage is being attacked from every side. Sensuality and licentiousness are not just rampant. They have become, I'm afraid, the norm. Rather than pursuing commitment, we see marriage so often as merely a contract, something that can be annulled or updated by a different contract. In place of love, so often we pursue lust. We've all but lost the ability to have open honest communication, face-to-face, heart-to-heart. And as a result, our marriages and our relationships of every kind are crumbling. And with the loss of marriage comes the loss of our society. Yes, churches have been saying this for many years and many generations, But secular historians, and I was just reading this past week, secular historians have traced the rise and fall of civilizations throughout history to this one thing. How much do you value marriage and purity? And as the society values these things, the society rises to greatness. And as we spurn these things, the society, the fabric of society, crumbles time and time again. And my friends, I dare say that we are on the verge of a societal collapse if it has not already started. We've all heard, of course, that the divorce rate is the same in the church and out of the church. Well, that's not actually true either. And that's good news, my friends. Among church-going Christians, the divorce rate is at least 30% less than in the general population. I said church-going. I didn't say those who... If you look at just those who claim to be Christians, it's the same. 
But if you look at church-going Christians, it's 30% less than the general population. And my friends, that's good news for every one of you sitting here today, because you're sitting in church, right? You want to have a better marriage? Come to church. Even in church, though, of course, we are not immune from the devil's attacks on marriage. We see all too sadly the results of those attacks. And sadly, for every divorce, there are many more marriages who are couples simply enduring a relationship for, for the sake of their children or for sake of their living arrangements or for the sake of preserving their reputation or whatever it is. And my friends, that's got to be a fate worse than death. And now this is getting a little bit depressing. I told you I was going to tell you about the perfect marriage, didn't I? I didn't come here to tell you all the bad things about marriage because, of course, marriage is a wonderful thing. Ten years ago, almost to the day, I, uh, it's been about three weeks now, I think, and it, it'll be the end of the 10 year anniversary of the day that I asked this beautiful young lady sitting here to be my wife. And in three weeks, we will be celebrating our ninth wedding anniversary. And I dare say that the last nine years have been the most wonderful years of my life. You know, there's a popular idea out there about marriage. It goes something like this. If only I could find the very perfect mate, I would have the perfect marriage. Now, to be honest with you, and I will say this, and there's probably several of us here that could say this, even if I did have the perfect mate, which I very, very nearly do, um, even if I did, I couldn't have the perfect marriage because, quite honestly, I'm not perfect. And even if I married the perfect person, my marriage couldn't be perfect because it takes two, right? And it's so often tempting to think that if my marriage isn't all that I hoped it to be, that perhaps, maybe this little niggling thought, perhaps I married the wrong person. Oh, wouldn't that be a terrible thought? Well, with all of these thoughts and with all of this background of this, these terrible statistics, I thought that perhaps it would be fun to go in the Bible and find some examples of the perfect marriage. This is God's book, after all. Shouldn't we find perfect marriages in here? So I started in the book of Genesis. If ever there was a perfect marriage, we should be able to find it in the book of Genesis. And we do. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20 so Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But to Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If ever there was a perfect marriage, this had to have been the perfect marriage, because God himself, he created Adam perfect in every way. And Adam sees there his need for companionship, and so God 
causes this sleep to fall on him, and he, he takes a rib from his own side. Not from his head, not from his foot, but from his side, okay? There's, an, there's a lesson in that, too, if you look at that. Takes a rib from his side and makes the rib into a woman. Someone to stand by his side as an equal. Brings them together in a match literally made in heaven. Oh, there's so many lessons we could learn from here. For one, um, one man and one woman. We can go down that road and talk about it all day. But we won't, we won't, we'll save that for another time. But I love how Adam says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. How many of our marriages today can we say that, I, that my spouse is literally like a part of me? I'm going to cherish her. I'm going to love her as if she was myself. A marriage made in heaven. If only the story ended in Genesis 2. Because we go to the very next chapter. And of course, we know the story, how Eve wandered from Adam's side. She reached out, she took the fruit. And then she ate the fruit, and then she brings it to Adam. And Adam, in this, this great, what he thinks is this great act of chivalry, takes the forbidden fruit and eats it himself. And no sooner have they eaten the fruit... And God comes and starts questioning them. The, the man says, well, well, she did it. It was her fault. And then she turns around and says, well, the snake made me. And then she starts blaming God. And how many times in our marriage is the first little thing that comes up? Well, it was her fault. It's the other person. <laughs> Not my fault. I, blame it all. I get all the credit. She gets all the blame, right? <laughs> So I think we're going to have to keep looking for our perfect marriage. If we, if we go on in the Bible, not too many pages over, we find the story of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the faithful. Of course, we would expect him to have the perfect marriage, but kind of. <clears throat> he lied about his wife. In fact, he was ready to basically sacrifice her to the heathen tribes there to save his life. And um, then when she couldn't have children, she, at her suggestion, he marries her, her handmaid, and we all know kind of how well that went. Well, let's go to Isaac. Now, maybe, I mean, Isaac, that was a spectacular way that he and Rebecca met, after all. I mean, it was miraculous, really. Uh, Abraham's servant goes hundreds and maybe a thousand miles away, finds this this young woman, miraculously. She agrees to come back, and I... Isaac loves Rebecca. They just have this beautiful, beautiful marriage, an arranged marriage in today's terms, but a beautiful marriage. But eventually, later on, Rebecca conspires with her favorite son to deceive Isaac. So I start to wonder how well that one worked out, too. Let's go on to Jacob. Whoa, whoa, no. Jacob for sure didn't have the perfect marriage. I mean, it, it would have worked out better, I think, if it hadn't been for this cruel trick that his, that his uncle played on him and switched out his bride on his wedding day. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so he has two wives, Rachel and Leah, and he loves one more than the other. And, but Leah's the only one that can have children, so in, he ends up taking... Uh, marrying their servants as well. So he has, basically has like four wives. And if you read the story there, it really doesn't sound like a lot of fun because they're always fighting each other. 
<laughs> and and so I told Christina one day, and she wasn't quite sure how to take this. I told her, you know, I've been studying the Bible. And I've decided polygamy is really not the best um, answer to <laughs> life's problems. Just just don't, don't don't even go there. You know, there's a lot of principles that we can learn from the Bible, and many of these stories they show us the right way to do things, and they show us the wrong way to do things, and it leaves it to us to to come up with our conclusions as far as. What is, of course, the Lord is very specific. I don't think he's not. He's very specific about adultery, about marriage, and about one man and one woman. Not a, not a harem. Not right. So I don't think anyone here needs to hear a sermon on that. We don't have any polygamists in this church. (laughs) Not that I know of anyway. But the beautiful story of Ruth comes to mind. And perhaps the closest we can find to an ideal marriage in in the trauma and the the messed up world that we live in but but then when we actually start to read the story it's it's really born out of famine out of distress and out of grief uh this this couple goes off because of the famine goes off to the land of Moab and Ruth is actually a Moabitess she's not an Israelite she is a Moabitess woman and uh, she marries one of the sons of this couple. And after so many years, her husband dies. And the Naomi's husband dies. And eventually they're left with just Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi decides it's time to go back to the land of Israel. And this, these beautiful words that are penned here that are so often quoted at a wedding weren't even said at a wedding. These were the words of Ruth to her mother-in-law. But let's read them there because they're beautiful. And we can learn so much about marriage from these words. Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me and you. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of commitment. The commitment that Ruth makes, not just to Naomi, but to the God of Israel, the great God, Jehovah. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. It's not just a passionate cry to a, to a lover to say, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. But it is the heartfelt, dedicated commitment to serve the same God. You see, my friends, so often we think of marriage as two people just, and the, you give the right people and the sparks fly, right? That's not what makes a marriage last. Sure, there's sparks of love and passion. And it's a good thing many times. But the thing that causes love to last is not the two people, but the one who made the marriage, who made the man and the woman in the beginning. And that relationship with the one, the great God, Jehovah, when two people have that relationship first with God, then and only then, can they truly have a meaningful relationship with each other? 
It's a triangle, so to, so to speak. And if you lose that side, sooner or later, the other halves will crumble. Yes, the story of Ruth is a beautiful story of commitment and a story of courage in the face of loss. And I wish today that more husbands and wives would take seriously these words, until death do us part. And yes, of course, at the end of the book of Ruth, we find the beautiful wedding of Ruth and, and Boaz. But it's hard to say, it would be hard to say that this is the picture of a perfect marriage with so much grief and so much loss in the story. I do find it interesting, and I want to bring this point out too, the point about Ruth being a Moabitess. And if you look at the laws of Israel, the Israelites were not supposed to intermarry with the other nations around. And you wonder, well, why, why is this story in here? Well, what is the principle behind that That command not to marry the heathen nations. Is it so much a xenophobic idea to keep the race pure? Is that, is that what the whole point of it was? Or was it rather don't marry someone who's not a worshiper of the true God? Now, was Ruth a worshiper of the true God? Well, we don't know about the, her first marriage. We don't know that much because it's so close to the beginning of the book. But we do know that by the time Ruth leaves Moab and comes back to the land of Israel, she makes a 100% wholehearted commitment to God. And in making that commitment to God, she, in a sense, becomes an Israelite, becomes a child, a child of Abraham. And Boaz has no problem taking Ruth as his wife, even though she descended from the Moabites. And we find that over and over again. We find in the New Testament, the verse that says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I think that's a principle that we can apply today. If we go out like Samson did and just say, get this woman for me because she, she's beautiful and she pleases me, even though someone may not be a, a believer. We're treading on dangerous ground, very dangerous ground, because so often, so often, that's the best way the devil can get us to give up our faith, by uniting with someone who is not a Christian. So that's just another, another little principle on the side. But we're looking here, we're looking through the Bible for the perfect marriage. And the third king of Israel, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote the most beautiful and profound love song in all the Bible. The love between this this man and this, the, this shepherd, this, this young woman. Oh, it's a pa- full of passion, full of love, full of such beautiful word pictures between a man and his bride. A symbol of the love between Christ and his church. If there was, ever there was a perfect marriage, this would have to be it. Wouldn't you think in the Song of Solomon? Well, until you lead, read the rest of the story of Solomon seems that he had about 300 wives. And uh, I like to think that this, this woman in this, in this book, the Song of Solomon, was perhaps his first wife. Um, and that these other concubines came later after he turned his heart away from God. But it's very sad to read the history of Solomon knowing he had such a beautiful love life in his early days. And then to think 
of how he had ruined himself and the nation of Israel by going after these heathen wives, these, these princesses of the other nations around. Yes, sadly, I think we'll have to keep looking for the perfect marriage in the scripture. Now, the prophet Hosea's marriage is worthy of note, though I don't think anyone here would argue that he had the perfect marriage. God specifically instructed Hosea to marry a prostitute. Now, if I was going to make a good list of potential marriage partners, I don't think Gomer would have been on the list. And even after the wedding, Hosea's wife continues in her habits and practices, her wicked practices, and brings children into their home that Hosea had not fathered. And yet, in spite of this, through this traumatic and colorful story, God brings out in a most powerful lesson his love for his wayward people. I love the part in Hosea how after she has sold herself away, she's gone. Hosea, as it were, mortgages the last bit, takes take himself the last bit of food in the house to bail her out, to buy her back, and bring her back home. See, my friends, I, I wonder if maybe we're looking at marriage all the wrong way. Maybe we've idealized this whole concept of marriage and relationships entirely too much. We look at relationships and say, what is it going to take to make me happy? What, are, do we not? And, and, and despite our best intentions of chivalry, and I'm speaking as a man here, of course, of, of, of oh yeah, I'm going to do anything for you. Really, at the end of the day, I just want someone to make me happy. And as long as I'm pursuing that idea, I'm never going to be happy and I'm never going to have the perfect marriage. We think maybe if I just find the perfect person, I can just be perfectly happy ever after, like a fairy tale. And when things don't work out perfectly, and in fact things go terribly wrong, it's so tempting to get discouraged. But what if the perfect marriage is not so much about perfect people as it is about a perfect commitment, a loyalty even like the loyalty of Hosea to his wife who had no loyalty to him. A loyalty that's willing to work through literally anything. There's one more marriage in the scripture that I would like to call your attention to. And I think you'll get what I mean. It's not a literal marriage. Not in the sense that we've already been talking about at least. But it's one in which, by God's grace, we can all have a part. Turn with me to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. And I'll begin reading in verse 9. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet, and worshipped him. Go on down to verse uh, 11. Now I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except he himself. Oh, what a beautiful picture 
of a marriage. The groom coming, riding on a white horse. But who is the bride? Who is the bride in this celestial wedding? Oh, if ever there was a perfect marriage, it would have to be this one. And yes, this is the one. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Then I, 21 and verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in verse 9, the last part of that verse, and he talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. We find it in verse 3. I skipped, I skipped down. Behold, I love this, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Who is the bride of the Lamb? Who is the bride of Christ? Is it not his church, the new Jerusalem, being all of those who have claimed his blood and the merits of his sacrifice? Now, be honest with me, my friends. Are we Christ's church? Yes? Are we a perfect bride? In our own, the way we are, are we a perfect bride? Perfect in Christ, yes, we are. But if we look at ourselves, are we not a whole lot more like that wife of Hosea? going every which way into every kind of unfaithfulness except faithfulness to him. And yet by his transforming grace, as Debbie has said, perfect in Christ, by his transforming grace, he has changed us from being the wife of Hosea to being the bride of the Lamb. My friends, in our survey of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, I believe we have finally found the perfect marriage. The marriage of the Lamb. Jesus is the groom. And not by any, because of anything in us, but because of His love. He has made us His bride. As faulty and as failing as we, the church, may be, yet He has redeemed us. What does that say about loyalty, about commitment, about his love, that he, through his love, can transform us into a spotless bride? For those of us who are married here, I want to ask, my friends, what can we do to have a perfect marriage? Do we complain because maybe we don't have the perfect spouse? Now, I've got to feel sorry for all of you because I've got the perfect spouse. I'm just sorry you can't have her. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do have the perfect spouse. But, but seriously, whenever I'm tempted to think about the little character defects that Christina may have, and she just has just a few of them, and we won't even talk about those, God gently reminds me that I have a whole lot more than she does. And truly... Having the perfect marriage isn't about having the perfect people. I really believe it's about having that commitment, first to God, and then to each other, 
But no matter what comes, we're going to work through it. And I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to judge my wife. Because as Jesus said, cast the beam out of your own eye before you cast the speck out of someone else's eye. And somehow when you're married to someone, you get to know that person better than anybody else in the world. And the more you get to know someone, yeah, you get to know their good qualities and you get to know their bad qualities. But that doesn't mean you got to go out somewhere else. Start all and grass is greener on the other side of the fence kind of thing. No, my friends, I believe that the perfect marriage comes from that commitment, the loyalty. And now I don't say that, I know whatever I say, people can take it to an extreme. There are, there are circumstances, I believe, in which I'm not saying you should divorce, but there are circumstances in which of abuse or, I mean, there's terrible things that happen where you've got to protect yourself and a person can't stay in a relationship where their life is in danger. Let me just say that. And I have, unfortunately, I have friends who have been in and who are in those kind of circumstances. And it's very, very sad the way the devil can drive people to be abusive and uh, dangerous that way. So I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is in our marriages, do we cherish, do we love the person Do we allow God to love them through us, despite their faults, despite our faults? And for all of us, whether we're married or whether we're not, I want to ask you, are you preparing for the great marriage supper of the Lamb? Are you each day allowing Him to lavish His love on you? You know, I think that's one of the reasons God gave us marriage. The love that Christina has lavished on me, even when I don't deserve it, has shown me a picture of the love of God. Do you allow God to lavish his love on you, though you don't deserve it, until it transforms your heart, transforms your life, and you don't want anything except to be loyal to him? Though you have been unfaithful, though you have maybe even been like the wife of Hosea. Will you allow him to love you and take you back? Will you allow him to make you into his spotless bride? My friends, I really believe this is what the gospel is all about. Love. Allowing Christ to pour his love into us, into our homes, and into our hearts, day by day, until he can take us home to be with him.